Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. I'm your host, Paul Ollinger. My guest this week is one of the most prolific authors in all of the personal finance publishing industry. Her name is Nicole Lappin. She's the New York Times bestselling author of the books Rich Bitch, Boss Bitch, Miss Independent, and Becoming Superwoman. She's on a mission to give women more financial literacy to empower them in their careers and relationships. And she knows a little bit of something about personal empowerment. I keep popping my peas, personal empowerment, because she's a summa cum laude graduate of Northwestern University where she studied journalism, which led her to, at age 21, becoming one of the youngest anchors in CNN history. She's a regular on cable news and TV shows all over the country and the host of the Money Rehab podcast with Nicole Lappin. We talk about a lot of stuff in this podcast, including some of the, the typical stuff in terms of how to become more uh, economically autonomous, how to get out of debt and things like that. But most importantly, we talk about Nicole's background. And I think it's important because I made some assumptions, some inaccurate assumptions about Nicole because she is so uh, accomplished, so successful. She's polished, fashionable, and let's face it, she's very, very attractive. Because of these things, I made assumptions about her background. I assumed that she was from a fancy family, from an affluent neighborhood, and had all the advantages in life. Well, it turns out her personal story is very different than what I had assumed. Her family life was gritty, at times tragic, and she used success as a, as a tool to both cope and have a destiny for her to pursue. I really appreciate her being so vulnerable and upfront with us. She shared some great stories, and I know you're going to enjoy them. This, ladies and gentlemen, is Nicole Lappin. Nicole, let's start with the basics. You grew up in Orange County, California. Is that correct? I sure did. What was life like in Orange County in the uh, late 80s, early 90s? Oh, God bless you. Paul, you are my favorite person. In the early 80s, it it was... Weird. I was like the only Jewish family in my area. My parents, both immigrants. So I'm first generation American. Where did they come from? Where did they immigrate Israel. from? Israel. Oh, cool. Israel. Yeah. I mean, I think it's cool now. I thought I was weird growing up. I mean, I, I still think I'm weird. But yeah, both of my parents immigrated from Israel. My mother's family went from Morocco to Israel. So a bunch of languages spoken growing up. Arabic, Hebrew, French. And do you speak all those languages still? Ish. 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 Which ones besides English do you have at your beck and call? Um, I can Hebrew was my first language, actually. Fun fact. So do you want to throw some Hebrew down or what? No. <laughs> I want to know about your childhood. I want to know what it was like bouncing around Orange County in the one Jewish family in, on the cul-de-sac. I had a really shitty upbringing. Are we really like gonna get all uh we're, we're going to get there. Okay, yeah, let's do it. Let's ta- if, you don't, if there's anything like, you don't want to talk about, we don't have to talk about it. But I'd like to know more about who you are. I like to talk about everything. No, scratch that. I don't like to talk about everything, but I will talk about everything. <laughs> yeah, I had a really nutso upbringing, really broken home. My parents divorced when I was three. They had a crazy divorce trial that was like all over the news at the time. My mother kidnapped me when I was three. Like it gets really wild. Like Looney Tunes USA, like wow! You really want to get into the all absolutely. This? I my name when I was three, yeah, and then went to was arrested, like had monitored visitation. My father died when I was eleven of a drug overdose. He was a very um, acclaimed surgeon who invented cool stuff in the medical field, but also really, um, really troubled dude. 
who's an alcoholic and a drug addict. And then, and yeah, so like my uh, trajectory was not what I am now is probably like destined to be a crack whore in an alleyway <laughs> or something. But you weren't, you were like a crazy accomplished kid and achieved a lot at a very young age. That's right. I, I think I self-prescribed not drugs or alcohol, but work. Did achievement make you feel like things were okay? If you could look at the Dean's list and see your name at the top, did that feel like that was, that was keeping you grounded? Yeah, I I think that it was my only antidote to the chaos, to what was this really, you know, you don't know it at the time. Of course, I, I can speak about it after years of trauma therapy and all of that. But, you know, you don't know that it's so chaotic. And so that was my answer from like this chronically abusive and, and not so, as I said before, upbringing. So you stayed with your mom through through high school? Yeah. And then I went to Northwestern. I lived in 10 cities in the last 20 or so years. And now I'm back to LA. What from your childhood informs how you went about managing your career? All of it. I mean, I was scared to talk about money growing up. My parents did nefarious things with money. I talk about in my last book, Miss Independent, how I bailed my mother out of jail using cash underneath the sink behind the maxi pads when I was like middle school. <laughs> and so that was my experience with money. So I wasn't, you know, destined to be any sort of expert with money. I never expected to have money, much less teach other people about it. And so it was really the thing that scared me the most, you know, a lot of like a lot of immigrant families my family like only talked about cash. It, nobody talked about a mortgage or bonds or interest rates or any of that. Nobody was like sitting around the kitchen table reading the Wall Street Journal. And so I got into it totally by accident. I just needed a job when I was 18 and I wanted to be in journalism. And I stalked a station chief in Chicago, uh, which is where Northwestern is. And wanted a job in local news. And he said, no, you can't have that job. I wanted it in Milwaukee and thought I could commute. He's like, you also don't know about geography, but uh, that's for another time. Um, Milwaukee, Chicago, whatever. Same, same. And then he was like, but do you know anything about business news? And I lied. And I said, absolutely. I love business news. And I realized that money is a language like anything else. We just don't learn the language growing up, not in school, not in your family, maybe in your family, but um, not a lot of families talk about it. And so I've, you know, I said, absolutely, I love business news. And it was the thing that terrified me the most. And I just needed a job. And, you know, I often argue with entrepreneurial experts who say, go out and do what you love, like YOLO, FOMO, whatever, yo. I didn't have that luxury. I just needed a job. And so I figured out how to find the shaded part of my Venn diagram of like the things that I like to do. I wanted to be a poetry major. I know. And the local Chicago station didn't didn't have a poetry correspondent. No, they didn't. I wish they did. That would have been sweet. Well, if you're if you're in New York <laughs> State, you can be the poet laureate if you're nine years old. It doesn't take more yeah, than a, a nine years to become poet laureate. What am I doing with my life? What was I doing with my life? No, I started as an English major and then I switched over to journalism thinking that I would make more money as a journalist. And then I didn't realize that you make like $18,000 a year. Your <laughs> Got first that job. journalism dough. Whoops. So you wanted a job because you needed to pay for college. Is that correct? 
I just need, I mean, I needed a job. I uh, went out to try to find something that I like was more passionate about and that didn't happen. So I wanted to, when I first started as a journalism major, wanted to be like Christian Amanpour and go to war zones and a report at the White House and stuff like that. But but you did some of that, didn't you? I did some of that um, when I went to CNN. Um, at but then 21 the economy years, went in tw- the pooper. At 21 years old, you were 21 at CNN. Is that right? I know, right? And people were like, oh, yeah, your daddy must have made a phone call. People have said this all the time in my life and career. They're like, oh, you know, she's just a rich girl. Why do you think people think that? Little did they know. I think for a long time, I tried to whitewash some of my upbringing. I think that I thought it was going to be this weakness that would bring me down. Later in life, I realized it was my superpower. And and I just reframed it that way because it's made me who I am. But yeah, it's always funny to me that people will say like, oh, what does she know? She just has a trust fund. I'm like, first of all, I wish. <laughs> like, I do not hate on people with a trust fund. I'm a little jelly, but I certainly, that wasn't my path. Okay, so I did do a couple hours worth of research on you. I spent hours with your books, both reading and, and listening. I read your Wikipedia. I watched a bunch of clips from you. And so when you had said, you know, I wasn't from a rich family, I will admit that I was thinking, oh, that's bullshit. Her dad was a doctor and she was like not the rich kid from, you know, Beverly Hills or Bel Air. She was like the, her parents were professionals and they both worked or something like that. Yeah. Right? No, well, I thought like, so maybe it's because, so I'm reading Brett Easton Ellis's new book, The Shards, you know, the guy that wrote Less Than Zero. Did you ever read that or see the movie? I didn't, but tell me more. So it's all about, you know, it's all about fashion in the early 80s in Los Angeles and super rich kids who are lost and on drugs and all that. And I was like, I bet she was just on the outside of that. So that's why she doesn't think she's wealthy. But indeed, your story is far grittier than that, Right. So, I mean, maybe it's because you put yourself together so well and you present yourself with such confidence and you were so successful at a young age that I and a lot of other people figure you had lots of steps up. And you did go to Northwestern from Los Angeles. So you go, okay, this is somebody who knows where they're going and what they want to do. Clearly, they had solid guidance. But sounds like that wasn't the case. Like most of it was you, right? Yeah. I mean, my mother, I think, barely made it out of high school in Israel. So I didn't have anybody helping me with those college applications, uh, but that would have been nice. I get it. So you're 21, you're at CNN, you started in journalism at 18 doing local news. When do you find the thing you're like, oh, this is it. That's the thing. That's my, that's my path. When I got to CNN, it was my dream job. I was quoted in some local paper, uh, I think when I was reporting at the CBS station in Kentucky or South Dakota or something. And I said, if I could say Nicole Lapp in CNN before I die, I'll die a happy woman. (laughs) And getting there at 21 is like high class problems, right? Because you reach your life's goal. And then I just kept raising the bar and raising the bar and, you know, kept moving the goalpost on myself. And so a few years into my time at CNN, my entire division was let go. And so before I was 25, I had gotten my dream job and lost my dream job. And then I, because the economy was in the shitter, can I say? Absolutely. I I want you to say shitter as often as possible. Um, (laughs) Then I went, 
I really leaned into my business news uh, roots because I started on the floor of the Chicago Merck and went to CNBC and then Bloomberg after that, uh, talking to old rich white dudes about money. And I don't know if leaving those networks, uh, my agents at the time said that I was ruining my career. Very funny. Quick aside, I was working with CAA at the time and like the head of TV said that you know, I was on this path to like go to the Today Show and the White House and all the all the things like Katie Couric, who he repped. And I said, well, listen, I don't think this is the paradigm anymore uh, when you have Kardashians and American Idol people like hosting the Today Show. And so I'm going to go try to do my own thing. And so I stopped working with them and I've just re-signed with them 10 years later, which makes me feel pretty good. You're coming back to <laughs> CA with a little bit more clout than you had yeah. a decade ago. Yeah, I guess I was right. And I took a huge bet on myself. Um, and I said, okay, well, here's the deal. I don't like business news, <laughs> truly, but I've figured it out. And I really want to talk to my former self. You know, the girl who was so super scared of talking about money would, you know, smile and nod and not join any money conversations. That's the person I want to talk to. So I'll take like some of the poetry vibes, some of the English stuff. Some, you know, I always wanted to be a writer. So I became a writer, Paul, just not the kind I expected. And when you think about, when you start to structure your career around service of a particular target reader and or viewer, what does that do for you in terms of clarity? Yeah, I don't think you can be all things to all people or you're nothing to anyone. Mm. And so when I, I had four failed book proposals uh, before I got my first book deal. So it was a long road. So how many letters did you write to agents before you got an agent? Or did you already have one with the CAA guy? I didn't. I, my very first book agent was somebody who reached out to me at CNN and was like a boutique agent. And mm -hmm. then I went to the one at CAA and then they didn't have time for me. And then I bounced <laughs> around. So I, but I have my, my, my book agent now, he's, He's done all of my books and the six more that are on the way. So I need to take book birth control. He's just not giving it to me at this point. Your book agent is never going to tell you to write less. They're going to tell you, <laughs> you know what you need is to stop doing social media and write more books. Yeah. I'm, one of my failed proposals was called Making Bank. I found it recently and it would have been terrible. It was like all things to all people, fun, cool money. It would have been terrible. It would have been dead on arrival. And so Rich Bitch, my first book, which became really successful, like more successful than I ever imagined, it knew exactly who it was reaching. It was super targeted and it was at the right time. It was around the recession. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that knowing who she is, like I know exactly who my audience is. She's who I was, you know? And so I know what she likes, what she's scared of, what she doesn't. And I think that you really can't be all things to all people or you can't offer things to all people or you're not really going deep to your people. There, there are a lot of people that don't like my content. <laughs> That's fine. I'm not for everybody. That's okay. But for the people I am, I'm really for them. What are the people that you just referred to who don't like your content? What do they say about it? Um, you know, I didn't get a lot of pushback. I wanted more, actually. I wanted more controversy about, around <laughs> the bitch title. Right, um, right. I was like, guys, come on, get upset about this. It would be yeah. good press. But, uh, you know, it was the idea of taking back the word and owning it, of mm -hmm. course. There were a few, um, like Mika Brzezinski on Morning Joe, who 
was a mentor of mine uh, in the news business, uh, she was like, yeah, I like this concept of financial literacy for women. That's a cool and important thing. But this title like mm, feels icky to me. And I'm like, listen, the ends justify the means. If you can get a woman to pick up a money book who never imagined she would have picked up a money book, like I think we all win. And that was my goal. It wasn't to, you know, reach people that already read about money and finance. And money at this point, you know, Susie Orman has a brand that had been long established, but that wasn't really modern. It wasn't focused at a young woman. It wasn't, she didn't exactly have a Carrie Bradshaw vibe to her, did she? I mean, you know, so you carry like, you remember from Sex in the City or you don't? Yeah, yeah. For sure. Okay, sorry. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. I, I'm, I'm very intimidated by the generational difference here, uh, Nicole. So I'm not sure what you've, what TV you watched when you were younger, but. Saved by the bell for the win. Nice. Nice. That was it. We watched that in the afternoon in college. So there's a gap in the market that you found somewhere in between Susie Orman and Sheryl Sandberg and Jen Sincero, I guess, hadn't come out yet when you first published. But there's there's space in there for you to find a lane. And Rich Bitch tells very clearly, this is a book about money. This is a book with some snark to it. This is a book of somebody who wants to be their own person, correct? Yeah, there was white space in the market. And, you know, the advice Susie Orman gives is great for her audience. And there there can be a lot of financial experts and they can reach different audiences. And that's great. It just didn't resonate with me when she was like, don't buy a latte, buy a house. I right. was like, oh, this doesn't feel right to me. I think buy a latte, have small indulgences, focus on the big things that really matter with finances, that's better use of your time. You know, with relationships, it's the little things, right? But with finances, it's actually the big things that matter most. So like stressing about the latte is not really helpful for your overall financial life. So I I just thought there had to be a better way. Like, and that's what I set out to do, you know, just do it my way. And it worked for me. And so I thought, you know, like, I'm kind of uh, the least likely person to be a money expert. And if I could do it, Really, anyone could do it. I'm allergic to cliches, Paul, so I was like hesitant to say that, but it, it's true. If I could figure it out, having like been dealt a shitty, shitty in the shitter hand, <laughs> um, anyone can. How did you figure it out? What was the low point for you financially and how did you turn it around? Um, when I first got a credit card because um, I didn't have one growing up or like even in college when friends would all put down their credit cards in, you know, at a restaurant or whatnot, I would be the awkward girl, like writing a check. Or <laughs> you weird. brought your checkbook to the restaurant. That's super hip. <laughs> I mean, I've always been the awkward girl, but, but really awkward about money. Uh, my boyfriend at the time said he wanted to be a hedge fund manager. I thought he wanted to be in gardening. Um, he actually dumped me because I couldn't hang out with his Wall Street friends. But then, like, fast forward, I felt very Elwoods, Elwoodsy, right. um, because his Wall Street friends wanted to hang out when I, when I joined CNBC and stuff like that. But I got into a bunch of credit card debt, and that probably was my financial low point. And look, I, you know, there, I lived for paycheck to paycheck for many years and ate brown rice and beans because it felt fancier than ramen. So I know what it's like. Um, I've been rich, I've been poor, um, and being rich is better. <laughs> yes, I agree. So you say you didn't, you want to give your reader the permission to get the latte, but if you want to turn things around financially, you had, you do have to make hard decisions, right? So which, 
hard decisions did you make? Was it the brown rice and beans before you went out and then joined people for drinks? Or what was it, what was it like? Well, I think it was prioritizing. I call it prioritized to pulverize because I love alliteration. So uh, I sneak in some, some poetry um, as, you as much as I can. But, you know, it actually wasn't necessarily focusing on the small things, but it was breaking it down into small steps. Mm -hmm. So I think anything overwhelming is easier broken down into steps. And then those baby steps broken down into even smaller steps. So I uh, ranked my, there are two methods of paying off debt, as you know, right? The avalanche method and the snowball method. And so mine was the avalanche method where I ranked my interest rates by highest to lowest. And then I tackled the highest first. And I think that's the big thing, right? And so I broke it down to $7 a day. I paid off $7 a day. That felt manageable to me and it felt like something I could tackle. Uh, and that's that's how I got out of it. That's how I got the debt monkey off my back forever. We're in a time of economic uncertainty right now. I know that when the first recession I went through as an adult was in 2001, 2000, 2001. I was working for a small dot-com. We went through massive rounds of layoffs. I, I felt as if it were my fault. I thought if I'd worked harder, I somehow could have prevented the company from going under, somehow could have prevented the macroeconomic situation that led to its demise. It's all your fault, Paul. It, I, that's how I was raised Catholic, Nicole, which is the with the other side of the Jewish coin, right? So I felt like it was my fault. What lessons did you learn in your first recession as a grown-up that you would share with those people who are being laid off right now or feeling a lot of stress about the uncertainty in their careers? The uncertainty is valid and it's real. If I could have gone back and told my former self anything, it would have been if I had some money on the sidelines, uh, I probably would have invested it because things were on sale. And so I think it's reframing your thoughts around it as much as you can. I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish and say like, hey, you just got laid off. Like, go invest in the stock market and just <laughs> Great time to turn buy. that frown upside down. Like, That's no, right, I yeah. get it. It's shitty. It's terrible. Like, nobody wants to hear that when you're going through it. But nothing lasts forever, uh, the good and the bad. And so, you know, it's somewhat helped me to remember the only constant is change. And so I've taken a lot from like my work in mental health and emotional intelligence into the financial world, because I think it's all linked, financial wellness and, and mental wellness, like you can't silo it. And so I've used a lot of, this is going to get nerdy, uh, stoicism philosophy around money. And I think oftentimes we suffer more in imagination than in reality, especially around money. And so I do this exercise a lot because I still have an irrational fear of being broke alone and homeless and dying in the gutter by myself. <laughs> like totally irrational. Is and it irrational? Is it irrational? It is. Like if you look at my bank account, like I don't have any chance of, of that happening. Um, good, good. Anytime soon. But it's not rational. It's, it's emotional. It's, you know, it's all of this sort of trauma, the scar tissue. Um, we all have it, whether it's with your family, you might be like, listen, Lapin, you really came in hot with your trauma. <laughs> Um, it's that's next level, and it is for sure. But if it was trauma to you, it's it's trauma, whether in your family or with your friend group. If you saw your friends, you know, getting into debt or or hiding purchases or whatever, or this macro trauma of the dot com bubble or the housing crisis or recession or this last pandemic, and so it's important to let that trauma 
talk, but I, when I get into this sort of rumination of thinking that I'm going to be homeless and, and broke and on all of that, because there are still remnants of that sort of MP3 or whatever, I, audio tape, I don't know, whatever's playing in my head, like the go-to rumination stories, I say, okay, well, let's just, let's just fast forward that tape. What would happen? So let's say like this deal that you're working on doesn't come true. Okay. What, what would happen? Would you be homeless? No, you'd go live at Sarah's house. (laughs) Sarah, thank God for Sarah. It would be okay. And it would be okay. Long story. I go through this whole exercise and the spoiler alert is that it will be okay. So do you think about, you talk about stoicism, which I think is the best philosophy you can possibly have for thinking about money and career and happiness and keeping your desires in check, not comparing yourself to other people, all that kind of stuff. How do you think about enoughness? And what do you want, what would you want to instill in young women's brains about enoughness and what that should feel like for them? Yeah, I think comparison is the thief of joy, which I think is what you're getting at. And it's really easy to do that. Um, And I'm not going to pretend like I still don't do that. There's never a point where you're like fixed or cured or better or smarter or like you've reached there. It's just always a journey. I think of balance. It's a noun and a verb, right? Uh, But oftentimes people use it as a noun in the same way as like success or, you know, whatever, enlightenment. I think of it as a verb. It's something that's constantly emotion and something you constantly have to work on. So I could sit here and say like, comparison is the thief of joy. Don't do it. Like, don't fall into like Instagram, you know, rabbit holes of of comparing yourself to people on fancy vacations. I do it too, but I find guardrails and boundaries around it and I don't do it as much. And for me, that's, that's a win. Do you have a practice? Do you meditate? Do you have a way of reminding yourself when you feel that, oh man, I really would like that house in Yellowstone, you know, like, boy, that looks nice. Mm, That's where the fancy, (laughs) what's that? Hard pass on Yellowstone, but like maybe Well, whatever, the next thing, okay, the beach, you like the Caribbean. I saw your Christmas list, right? And if you could get a house in the Caribbean, boy, would you, would not make you happy? And you have to stop and go, would it make me happy? Would it not make me, am I okay? I'm okay. I mean, that's really what it is about stoicism is reminding yourself that you're okay and you're going to be okay, whether you get that next thing that you think you want or you don't. Yeah, for sure. And I think that we can have it all only if we define what it all means and stop changing the goalpost on ourselves. So, you know, this, this is a question I get asked on like, all panels. Um, I don't think you've probably ever been asked, can you have it all? Because that's a typically like lady question, which is annoying. But, um, but you know, what does it all mean? Does it mean having a house in Yellowstone or a house in the Bahamas? Like, is that on your list? Or maybe it's just, you know, chilling in your backyard with like a lawn chair from Target. And that makes you happy with a book. You're the only one who has to wake up in your life. And so when you look at that yacht or that thing on, on social media, and you're like, fuck, what, like, what have I been doing with my life? Clearly, I suck. Like, why am I not a, a like, laureate at not nine? Like, I might as well just, you know, call it a day. Was that on your list? And if it wasn't, like, remind yourself that that's not on it all for you. It might be for them or maybe not, but it's not on it for you. And so you can't do it all at the same time. But I think you can have it all if you really get curious about what it all means and sort of measure to metrics. This is a concept in business, of course, but 
I think it's really relevant for your personal life too. When you, when you find it to be so overwhelming, like when I launched my, I think it was my third book, I totally had a panic attack and it was really meta because it was about burnout and and avoiding burnout. And I felt like I was on the verge of another burnout, which was so embarrassing. And you know, and then I just said, well, what, what am I freaking out about? Like, what is success? I have to define it or it's, I'm never going to get it. Like, is it five media interviews? Is it like, you know, whatever thousands of books, what is it? Because if you don't define it, like you're never freaking going to get there. But we do define it. We say, if I were a New York times bestseller, I'd be happy. And then you become a New York times bestseller. And then are you happy? Or do you go, (laughs) right? No, you're not. That's what, this was like the story of my life. And then you become, no, if I have, you know, two books that that are bestsellers or or whatever. And like, it's not enough uh, until you remind yourself that you're enough and it is enough. And you go back to saying, well, what was that? And how can I, how can I measure to that and not change the rules mid play? Like I'm bad at sports analogies and stuff like that, but. I think one of the ways that we can find balance and reminders that we're good with what we have is to say, is to be conscious about the way we spend money. So what are the ways that you spend money that bring you the most joy? I uh, have come up with a plan and truly all financial experts talk about this set it and forget it thing. I used to have so much anxiety around money that I would check my accounts like multiple times a day thinking that magically either it would leave or there's going to be more money that comes in somehow. It's not changing. And so I think for me, having boundaries around what a plan is um, and not stressing about it every day makes me really happy. Um, And also allowing myself small indulgences because, you know, that's why you work so hard. And uh, and I never advocate to anyone else to cut those out, and I don't do it myself. And what are those for you? What are your what are the things you like the most? I just bought a killer pair of new Nikes that I that I love. What are those? That's awesome. Right now, it's mostly stuff for Penny, my dog. <laughs> um, what kind of dog? She's a mini poodle. I, I was told she was a toy poodle, but she's sixteen pounds, so I think she's a mini poodle <laughs> at this point. Um, She's the best. You can follow her on Instagram at DoggyCoin, which is really the only thing I want to promote on this episode. <laughs> All right. Let's get her some new, let's get Penny some new followers. She's so you best. like buying things for your dog? Is that because it's. it's yeah, it's, and experiences and trips and stuff like that. Right. Mostly. Yeah. I know, you know, that's cliche at this point because millennials, and I'm an elder millennial, love that experience. I think that's a true human experience, not just millennials. I mean, if you look, I'm sure you know Liz Dunn and Mike Norton from Harvard who wrote the book Happy Money, and they talk about the ways that you can spend money that make you the happiest. And spending on experiences is one of the number one things. And I mean, there's nothing, there's no trip I've taken with my family, and we've taken some very nice trips where I go, boy, we shouldn't have done it. It was too expensive. Now, I hope my wife isn't listening to that because she will use it against me. But, you know, I'm like, those are the greatest memories I have in my life. Yeah. And I I remind myself stocks, not stuff. Truly. I talk about in one of my books, uh, they're all blurring together, but this idea that growing up, I was so jealous of these girls who had this chunky sterling silver Tiffany bracelet with the little dangly heart. Sure. And I couldn't have one of those. And so 
I thought, and I had like a bunch of bullies growing up and stuff like that. And, and fast forward when I became successful or was on TV, one of them reached out and something about it was like, I'm going to go buy, I'm going to go to Tiffany's right now and I'm going to buy this bracelet and it's like all going to come full circle and I'm going to feel, you know, like the, the mean girls didn't win. And I went in there and I looked at the bracelet and I was like, cool, I could buy this bracelet. I could buy a bunch of these bracelets, but I'm not. And instead, I'm going to buy Tiffany stock. And that's what I did. And I kind of have conditioned myself to buy more assets than liabilities. That's Because badass. like, who cares about that stupid bracelet? That is badass. I had the same experience. So I liked, especially when I was a younger guy and I was single until I was mid 30s. And I bought a couple of nice watches and I was like, how cool these watches are. And then after, I worked at Facebook and after Facebook IPO, I bought a really nice watch. And I wore it out one night with the, my longest time, bestest friends in the whole world. None of them looked at it. None of them acknowledged it. And I was like, oh, they don't give a shit about my watch. And that's the thing. But also, you didn't buy it for yourself, I guess. Well, I on some level, I think I bought it because I thought I could, and that I would that it would make me happy, and that like, look at me, I'm a I can buy. But then you have that sensation, like you had in Tiffany, where it's like the knowledge that I could buy the watch was just as good as owning the watch. In fact, it was kind of better because I can wear I wear uh, an iWatch. That's the only watch I wear now. All the others are in a safe somewhere, and someday I'll sell them. And because I, I don't I don't wear them anymore because it doesn't matter. Nobody who's impressed by my watch is somebody that I care about impressing, you know? And that's this weird, like, trick that money plays on your brain that turns everything around. You go, oh, I don't really need the stuff I thought I wanted when I didn't have the capacity to buy it. Word. General question. Do you think everybody should go to college? No. The people that work on my team, like, I actually have no idea if they went to college <laughs> or where they went to college. <laughs> I think I have in one of my books, like a breakdown of um, going to business school and just really doing the math of, around what people say they're going to get as, you know, this this sort of extra salary or, or whatever earnings over their lifetime and then the amount of money they spent. And if they put that in the market instead, they would have yielded more return if it's truly just a return thing. Okay, fine. But one of my business school friends just texted me before this call, invited me to his house in Montana. So, I mean, there's that too. Okay. I You're mean, not impressed I have by friends that okay. didn't go to college that have houses in Montana. <laughs> I mean. Let me ask it another way. What, as my 12 year old daughter is uh, bright and funny and hilarious, as she starts to grow and think about her career, what skills would you advise her to develop? Personal financial literacy, that's on you, Paul, because they're not learning this in school. It's crazy that I've gone to MBA programs at Columbia and Georgetown and all of these like fancy schools where they're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for their brain. And I do a personal finance little workshop with them and they have so many questions. And it's so bizarre to me because what the heck are they paying for? <laughs> and they still don't know how to Somebody said, like, I have money because I have checks. I was like, am I in the twilight zone? Like, am I getting punked right now? Is this a joke? Oh, that's funny. So it's, in, you know, unfortunately, and I'm doing a lot of efforts around financial literacy um, and legislation for that. And I've also, like, launched my own classes because I was tired of just saying, if I were in charge of the world, like, I'd put financial literacy in school. Um, so I just did some. And yet it's still not 
mandated everywhere. So it's incumbent on the parents to teach them. So to have a little class with her. What advice would you give people about when and how much to take out in student loans? That's super tricky. I mean, oftentimes, uh, this is a question from parents around how much did they pay for college? And the answer is to put your oxygen mask on first, even before helping your kids. Because sometimes it's a question of retirement contributions or saving for your kid's college education. And there are a bunch of vehicles that are tax deferred and cool, like 529 plans and and whatnot. Um, But if you're not saving for yourself, uh, that's not helping your kids. Like the sentiment is there. Your heart is in the right place. But if you have no money and you're eating cat food in retirement, like living on your kid's couch, that's not helpful. So I I just always (laughs) remind people to you know, invest in their own retirement and their own safety net first. Kids can take out loans and and work and get scholarships and grants and and all that stuff and they can figure it out. Or or maybe they won't go to college. But like always put your oxygen mask on first. You mentioned retirement. A lot of people say, if I get to a certain point, 3 million, 5 million, 20 million, whatever the number is, how do you feel about the magic number? Should people have a magic number and what do they do when they get there? Well, I more want to know what you would do with that money. The I just want a million dollars thing is so silly. And I hear it a lot. What would you do with that million dollars? Maybe you need more than a million dollars. Maybe you need less than a million dollars. I don't freaking know. Like first figure out the life you want to live and then reverse engineer to figure out how to get the money to live that life and not the other way around and come up with like some random magical number. Is there some number past which you would stop working? Is there a number where you would work less? You're already choosing to do what you want to do, it seems. So why would you stop? Yeah. It's not about the money. It's about winning. It's about winning. What does that mean? And it's it's about mission. It's truly, like, it it sounds, um, again, it sounds Pollyanna-ish, but I really do feel like, you know, I was put on this planet to to teach this thing that's not being taught and to, to help women have more financial literacy and empowerment in their lives and their relationships. I think it's, you know, I think that's what's going to fix the gender wage gap and the and the racial wealth gap and and all the wealth gaps. And so yeah, I mean, I'm 30, I'm almost 39. I've never been married, don't have kids. And so will that happen maybe, but I really am mission oriented. So it's it's about winning for that. W- winning for that mission. Seeing yeah. your mission be successful. Well, speaking of which, what are the next, what, you said you have six books, you have a six book deal, that's massive. What's the direction <laughs> of those books? Where, where are we going next? Yeah, I, it was a seven book deal. I, I released the first of the seven uh, last year, Miss Independent. And the next six, it, it's kind of, it's not as impressive as it sounds. Five of them will be like a little dummy series and then one other bigger book. Um, So a dummies series around single subjects in money. So the money school for, you know, stocks and bonds, money school for buying a house. And so, you know, if you get my books or or my class or listen to my show, you're and you need to do one thing really well, it's not going to give you all the ins and outs of that. So that's why I wanted to go deep in single subjects rather than wide, which I had done previously. When your fans reach out to you, what is the thing that makes you feel best that they say to you? How do you know you've accomplished your mission when you hear from people who read your stuff? 
Yeah, it it really affects me, and I and I try to respond as much as I can. Um, and we've we've staffed up to try and respond even more. But you know, I will hear people say that I've changed their lives in in a lot of different ways. And and during book events, like I, it would always be crazy to me that I'd have like women crying. I'm like, I assumed like maybe one person. <laughs> bought the book and you kind of dissociate. And even on TV, you don't see humans, but when you see them and they have like stickies on the note on tattered books and like pregnant women are buying it for their unborn daughter to be like a boss bitch. It's, it's wild. Uh, and so, you know, I often say like, I didn't change your life. You changed your life. I'm just like that awkward mom on the side of the stage, like the mean girl's mom with the camcorder cheering you on. That's funny. Okay, so Boss Bitch is the perfect gift for First Communions and uh, brisses right. and all that kind of stuff. I guess not a briss, <laughs> clearly. I've, I, I have Jewish friends, Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right, so last question, Nicole. Do you feel rich? Yes. Period. The end. Excellent. Outstanding. What, again, is Penny's Instagram account so we can put it in the show notes? <laughs> Yes, I feel rich in all, in all senses of the word beyond money. Um, and that's what I really teach, living a rich, full life. Penny's Instagram is at DoggyCoin. So like Dogecoin, but better. D-O-G-G-I-E-C-O-I-N. That's one coin that won't lose its value. That's right. And we'll put links to your other stuff in the show notes. Nicole, thank Not you so as much. Important. For, well, <laughs> I appreciate that. But just for shits and giggles, we'll do it. Thanks for being Thanks, a part yes. of this today. Nice to talk Thanks, to you. Paul. Likewise. Thanks again to Nicole Lappin for taking the time to join us in conversation on Crazy Money and for being so open and honest about her background and her journey. Uh, it's always those personal stories that offer us the best insights to think through the lessons that all of us struggle with when it comes to money, success, being the best people we can be. And so thanks to Nicole for her candor. If you like what we're doing here, folks, please take a second to rate and review Crazy Money on whatever podcast app you're listening to. And by all means, share it with a couple of friends who you know are smart and curious and want to live better, stronger, more positive lives. That's what we're up to really here at Crazy Money and enjoying a few laughs along the way. Please take a look at the links in the show note to Nicole's Instagram account and her podcast. And if you're bored, maybe uh, take a click on that Paul Ollinger Substack link and read what I'm writing over there on the Substack. We'll be back next week with another great guest. I hope you have a wonderful seven days until then. Goodbye. 